0: Hello and welcome to The Innovation Quotient, a new podcast series where we examine innovation and discuss how it can fuel future progress. I'm Andrew Staples, Editorial Director of Initiatives and Alliances at Economist Impact, an arm of The Economist Group which works with organisations to further their mission. This podcast, supported by Philip Morris International, is part of an Economist Impact research programme called The Innovation Quotient, which examines how innovation can be fostered so as to drive socio-economic progress around the world. In this episode, we invite specialists in education and learning to review the indicator findings and explore the role of emerging technologies in reshaping education. My guests today are Pilvi Torsti and Andreas Sleitje. Pilvi is director of European Training Foundation, ETF. She has served in leadership and expert roles in the field of education, learning, research, science, innovation, and public policy, in Finland and globally since the 1990s. Andreas is Director for Education, Skills, and Special Advisor to the Secretary-General at the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, in Paris. He supports the Secretary-General with analysis and policy advice to advance economic and social progress. Pilvi, Andreas, thank you for joining me today. The innovation quotient is designed to examine the extent to which innovation ecosystems enable or impede innovation for progress. Education, skills, development and training are crucial components of the innovation ecosystem. While there are areas of good performance, many countries and companies can be doing much better in terms of creating an enabling environment for innovation. How then can policymakers and business leaders foster a stronger enabling environment for innovation? If innovation is to help us deal with a range of challenges that we face today, how can we better prepare the next generation whilst also ensuring that the current workforce has the skills and values that they need? Pilvi, perhaps you could briefly explain your role at the European Training Foundation and your initial thoughts on these questions.
1: Thank you, Andy. We are an EU agency working in the field of human capital development, so covering education, training, skills, uh, systems development, etc. Our geographical focus is mainly outside of the European Union, so our partner countries cover those uh, immediately neighboring European Union, but also Central Asia. We do work with African Union as a global knowledge hub. The working mode sort of emphasizes uh, on one hand monitoring and analysis, Then foresight, in particular, on the skills, and then bringing these together to do meaningful policy advice, both for our partner countries, but also for international organizations, such as, for instance, banks, international financial institutions. And coming to your uh, large questions, education and skills level. So in order to enable innovation, societal and economic, we need high level of education and validated skills levels. And two examples on this, one from my native Finland, where about 10 years ago, we really saw the need for three reforms. One on continuous learning for adults, the other one on secondary education, making it obligatory as part of the comprehensive model, and the third to broaden the access to higher education. And if we look at our partner countries in the European Training Foundation, we see that the vocational education systems are very open to innovation in a sense that they do want to open their doors both in terms of learners and in terms of also businesses to come in, but this sort of place of theirs as part of national, for instance, innovation ecosystems is the one that is lacking. So in that sense, the first element, the level of education and, and, and skills, Uh, needs to be looked at, and it's through reforms. And I think the Finnish statistics really show that those reforms also worked. We are now getting our young people to secondary education, to higher education, and adults more and more to the continuous learning uh, mechanisms. That brings to the second enabling, I think, uh, factor, which is lifelong learning at large. We have aging populations in different parts of the world. We also see it in our partner countries, even they are from Central Asia, uh, North Africa, Eastern Europe, So therefore, you would really have the need to upskill and reskill the adults that are currently working, for instance, in sectors that will probably diminish in terms of jobs. And the upskilling would need to happen in the fields that are rising, for instance, digitalization and green. However, education systems focus on the youth. So we have this paradox or puzzle where we don't see the focus On adults, even we know what the aging pyramid is, and this needs a rapid change towards lifelong or continuous learning system. Then I think the third element needs to be leadership, and that's leadership in political decision-making, that leadership in schools, that's leadership in um, finances. But unless you look at the leadership, it's hard to talk about enabling. And I will close by saying there is the question of equity. It's a generational equity. It's a geographic equity, Uh, inclusive systems seem to be more efficient, inclusive systems seem to bring about innovation, both societal and economic. And it's particularly important now with digitalization, where we really have a danger of the sort of inequality in various levels.
0: Thank you for that. Andreas, if if I could come to you and perhaps get your initial thoughts from your vantage point at the OECD, but perhaps also reaching back into your other experiences around international uh, education.
2: Yeah, we still have a very industrial approach to education. Uh, often, you know, it's not about pushing ideas into a system. It's about uh, finding, you know, what those novel approaches are, scaling and spreading them and getting people at the front line to collaborate and uh, innovate in the system. This is how innovation works. It's about connecting the dots where the next big approach will come from, and that is not the approach we typically use in education. We want education to be very predictable. We want to know exactly what the final exam is going to test and prepare people for that, and that is often not conducive uh, to the innovation. When we at the OECD, uh, survey teachers uh, some years ago. Most of them would tell us, you know, I'm rather penalized than rewarded for bringing new ideas into the system. And uh, the other part of the equation is that the kind of things that are easy to teach and easy to test have also become easy to digitize, to to automate these days. So this this world no longer rewards you just for what you know. Now Google knows everything the world rewards you for what you can do with what you know and again that is not something that education often recognizes and rewards but that has actually very little to do with scientific inquiry which is about questioning the wisdom of our times not simply reproducing it so again i think if we want to see more innovation we need to build greater agency we need to give people more discretion more Room to try out things and of course you know, if you try out things, you experiment, you, you take risks, if you take risks, you make mistakes. If we are not becoming better to help learners learn from and with mistakes, develop that kind of growth mindset, then you know, probably uh, we're not going to educate for a more innovative world. No? We also need to recognize that, you know, output is always a product of the skills that we develop and how effectively our economies actually extract uh, value from this. Simply developing better knowledge and skills will not necessarily yield a more productive economy. i give you an example. You know, in our survey of adult skills, uh, Japan always comes out on top. That is, the adult population is very highly skilled, very strong literacy skills, very strong numeracy skills across the spectrum. But then, you know, productivity in Japan is not so great. And why? Because the labor market is very rigid, very silent. Women are excluded from many kind of occupational pathways. And at the end of the day, you know, all of that talent, all of that, you know, capital, that human capital is not put to productive use. You go to the other end of the spectrum, you know, take a country like the United States, where actually talent development is very patchy. Now, some highly skilled people, but also a lot of people without even the most basic skills. But you know, the economy is actually really good at extracting value from the skills of people. Now, if you have good skills, you're gonna get a good job and you get a great life. You know? So basically better skills translate into better jobs, better lives. So and, and that, you know, allows the United States, uh, A, to import great human capital and B, to use what it has in very effective ways. So we need to look at both sides of the equation. You know, how do we actually equip more people with better skills to collaborate, compete and connect, be innovative, and at the same time also have an environment, a labor market, an economy that actually puts those skills to effective use?
0: Yeah. I had the opportunity to work in the Japanese um, secondary and tertiary education system. And uh, and I can see some of the challenges there, which let me just sort of stay with that at the moment. China, Singapore, Hong Kong, all of these uh, locations take the top slots when it comes to secondary level outcomes in maths and sciences. But it's the UK, it's the United States, it's Germany that take the top spots in tertiary education. And I wonder what the link is there between what you were just describing is that industrial approach to education and the sort of higher level education that we need that that is hopefully tapping more into creativity and fostering more innovation. Why, why the mismatch there, do you think?
2: You know, the great thing is that, you know, as humans, uh, we are born as entrepreneurs. We are born with an abundance of creativity. If you have a three-year-old son or daughter, you know, they're going to question anything you tell them. You're going to experiment with everything that you put into their hands. They're always willing to learn, always willing to Unlearn, always willing to relearn. But then, you know, we put them into schools, we try to make them compatible with established ways of thinking, we make them, you know, learn answers rather than ask questions. And then we get surprised when we sometimes lose that energy of that 21st century, that creativity. You know, we recently did a survey where we looked at creativity among 10 and 15 year olds in in every jurisdiction. We found that 15-year-olds reported lower levels of creativity than 10-year-olds. If I would tell you in mathematics, you know, your 15-year-olds do worse than your 10-year-olds, you would say, well, I'm crazy. You know, education always adds value. But, you know, not necessarily. Maybe our way of education actually uh, takes away some of that, you know, ingenuity, entrepreneurship, creativity with which we are born because it rewards compliance over innovation.
0: Lovely. But just on that point, and, and, and to pick up, uh, Pilvi, what you were mentioning earlier on, the importance of equity within education and learning systems. I mean, one thing that we pick out in the um, in the innovation quotient is the cost of education. And the United States and Britain come out um, at the bottom of that scale. It's very expensive. Um, what's working in terms of creating a, a more equitable education system, particularly when it comes to higher education?
1: Will you allow me also to go back to the, I think, very important point of this industrialized uh, age? of? So I'll, I'll, I'll do that probably first and then I come to your question.
0: Mm, please.
1: Um, I think it's very important to recognize how were actually our education systems created. They were created to serve the industrial age in the 19th century. And we are in a very similar systems in most of the places in the world still. And therefore, I think a very interesting uh, um, approach at the moment is to look at the sort of internationalisation and globalisation of education that I have started to see in particular in vocational education uh, when working in in the ETF and European Training Foundation. Uh, Some time ago, we wrote with colleagues from India and New Zealand an article about global vision for education being needed. And in that, we were sort of developing more from the sort of technological side that we have platforms now. So I think moving from the industrial 19th century model to global approaches would still cater for local needs. Then when it coming to sort of spending and equity, it's very important to keep these two questions together that how much is spent on the level of a country and what is the efficiency. At ETF, we just published what we do um, uh, annually, a monitoring report where we have about 200 indicators of countries that are not usually always part of the international analysis. So it's about 30 countries, Eastern Europe, Southern Mediterranean, Central Asia. And there we really see that similar spending can bring about very different results in relatively similar sort of education and skills uh, frameworks in different countries. And I think that kind of data can also help countries to understand that it's not only about spending, but it's really about how do you bring your different institutions to the discussion, for instance, of the skills dimension. Because very often we still see the vocational and education institutions, for instance, catering for secondary education for young people, but not for the adults for which we see the huge need. And therefore, also the whole question of spending probably becomes a bit irrelevant in our huge need for reskilling and, and upskilling. And it's not only about the sort of getting the different degrees, but we should have the system to serve these skills needs.
0: Andreas, to come back to you on that point, I, I think you had a comment earlier on that you wanted to share.
2: Uh you know, creating
1: a level playing field is
2: perhaps the biggest challenge that we, we do face in, in education. We have a lot of uh, economic, social policies to deal with the consequences of inequality, you know, redistribution tax policies and so on. But actually, uh, that is very expensive and it's an uphill struggle, actually. Uh, education provides perhaps the only way to address the sources of inequity now, equipping all people with the kind of knowledge skills attitudes and values to actually make a difference in the economy in, in the society and uh, if you address the sources of inequity you have to worry much less about you know uh, their social economic uh, cultural political consequences now. much of the polarization that we see today economically you know socially politically has to do with uh, unequal opportunities and unequal possibilities that people have. Now, on the optimistic side, you can see actually there are some education systems doing really well on on leveling the playing field, on disconnecting social background from educational opportunity. You can look at countries in Northern Europe, uh, Estonia, uh, Denmark, uh, Finland, perhaps you can look to many education systems in East Asia. You know, the 10% of the most disadvantaged 15-year-olds in the region of Shanghai in China actually had better mathematics skills than the 10% wealthiest Americans. And that really shows that poverty need not be destined. And when you ask, you know, what do they do? How do they achieve this? It's not rocket science. They're very good in attracting the most talented teachers to the most challenging classrooms. They align resources with needs. They don't necessarily invest more overall But they're very, very good in ensuring that the resources are invested where they can make most of a difference. You know, many of the foundations are built in the earliest years of life. That's where educational opportunity matters most. And then, you know, recognizing that different learners learn differently and embracing that diversity with a more personalized approach to learning, often technology-enabled. The the recipe is not that difficult, uh, but it's often politically uh, challenging.
0: And, and just to dig into that point a little bit more, what's working as you look out across the OECD? What type of policies are fostering or enabling that more individual ownership of, of lifelong learning and skills development?
2: You know, we, we used to learn to do the work, but now learning has become the work. It's no longer about accumulating learning once in your life, getting a degree and a qualification, but being able, being willing being open to new opportunities, being able to upskill and reskill, seeing yourself every day in a, in a new world. And that also means we need to move away from very lumpy degrees and qualifications to giving people greater ownership over what they learn and how they learn best and uh, where they learn best. And then when in their life is the most appropriate time for uh, acquiring new knowledge, new skills, new attitudes and values. Tools like micro-credentials that are much more granular, much more adaptive to different learning needs and styles will probably replace a fair amount of the kind of formal qualifications that we used to acquire early in our careers. So uh, skills become more like a currency. You will actually accumulate it in different places, in different ways, and you will lose it because we also know that the skills that we do not use atrophy very quickly and also skills obsolescence this is real, you know, the kind of skills that helped our parents be very successful are no longer that useful for us often. So I think we need to recognise that this currency, this skills currency has actually a high degree of inflation and we need to adjust for this by, you know, giving people better opportunity to adjust their capabilities.
0: Pilvi, if I could come to you, when you're talking to your partner countries, how far does that learning travel? Or is there just a need to say, yes, I understand all of that, but I need to get them educated. And all the sort of ownership and, uh, and the lifelong learning, we can't do that. We need to focus on, on the basic skills. Is that a challenge that you face? And, and if so, how would you overcome that type of um, challenge?
1: Of course, the financial means in geographical regions are different. And when we talk with our partner countries, many are in the situation of fragility or war, even as we speak, And then you, of course, have the questions, where should I focus first? So if I take some illustrative examples, perhaps, uh, how we see this in our work, one is, of course, the the governance. That's leadership. So in the lifelong learning, the adult systems, it's typically uh, very fragmented. So that's one sort of policy level to address. uh, And then it makes easier also to bring in, for instance, businesses once you have the governance also a little bit more organized. I was discussing with some of our experts who work on the digital education uh, reform framework in countries such as Moldova, Egypt, or Algeria, and what they say that while it's important to bring the uh, businesses and have that sort of a dialogue, it's equally important actually to train the policymakers and decision makers because they, for instance, will decide on the tools, on the digital tools that are being used in the system. And we also see in our data, this huge gap in people's identification of their own needs. So when we look at basic education in our partner countries, work, people at at work, less than one third actually think that they would need some extra training. And this is an, of course, result we've always globally had that those in need actually search for the uh, opportunities the least. And finally, we need to look at the skills needs. Uh, When preparing for this, I had a look at the World Economic Forum's top 10 skills. So while 2015, something like creativity was not really recognized, but the top skills were problem solving, coordination, people management. We come to 23, analytical thinking, resilience, flexibility, motivation and self-awareness, curiosity and lifelong learning. So the whole horizon has changed. And shows that we have to be very agile in our work and therefore sort of allow for that kind of systems to develop that are able to react to these changes and therefore allow people also to, to really be employed in the future.
2: Yeah.
0: Andreas, you talk with policymakers, you talk with ministers and, and, and so on. Um, how do you get them to become more agile? How do you get them to, to move to a post-industrial environment for education, learning and skills?
2: You know, most senior policymakers do understand the issues that we are talking about. They're actually quite uh, acknowledging of those uh, needs. What we often still have is a layer of concrete in between, you know, a very heavy kind of education bureaucracy uh, that makes change very difficult. And we also need to realize that sometimes, you know, we as parents are more part of the problem than part of the solution. You know, we get very anxious when our children no longer learn what was important to us. So when they start to learn things... We no longer understand as a teacher. You're more likely to teach how you were taught than how you were taught to teach. And as a policymaker, you know, you can lose an election when something goes wrong in education. You're not going to win an election over doing something well because, you know, good ideas are going to take time to translate into better outcomes. So that is a very heavy kind of combination. And and, uh, to break through, I think we need a different approach. Uh, We need certainly a lot more agility on the part of providers. You know, we need to understand when educational programs no longer serve uh, the needs of our economies. The fact that, you know, we have many young university graduates having difficulties finding a good job, and at the same time, employers say they cannot find people with the skills they need really highlights that, you know, often there's a lack of agility on the part of of providers as well. Uh, It's really what we need. Uh, Skills future in Singapore actually you're going to get a credit when you're born and uh, you can use that resource for education in a way that fits you and your life best you decide you know when and where and how uh, to acquire the skills yes you can go to university but you can also learn in the workplace so it puts really that ownership to the individuals and then you know, when you acquire new skills your employer Will recognise you for that because there's the credentialing system, a lot we said, and I think that creates a totally different set of incentives for actually, you know, shift uh, the the locus of control from the provider of education uh, programs to the user. Delivery, well, you know, many of the learning platforms are becoming really, really good at personalising learning. Yeah, you know, I've often asked myself, you know, how did an education system like uh, Shanghai made it from an average performer right to the top in a very short period of of history? And and the answer lies in being more open to ideas and innovation from the people themselves. You know, they have a digital platform where teachers can, you know, upload their ideas, their projects, They combine that with reputation metrics, and at the end of the school year, your school principal will not only ask you how well did you teach the children in your class, but what contribution did you make to the education system? How do other people look at you? You know, what? how are your ideas actually shaping public policy practice in the school system? Right? If you have a project you want to pursue, you know, you ask the government, and actually it's easy to get a grant for this as a teacher, as a school leader. And if you're successful with this, suddenly you become an innovation leader. You run a community of practice that changes the education systems. And this is really how, you know, education itself becomes not a receiver of prefabricated wisdom, but an engine of development, of growth. And you know, that's what made that education system so incredibly successful.
0: Thank you. Pilvi and uh, Andreas, maybe I could just ask you one, one final question. Again, going back to the sort of guiding principles of this research program is, is to identify gaps, is to identify opportunities, share best practice. So when it comes to inculcating a more innovative approach to education and learning, I wondered if you had a, a final comment on what you think we can and should be doing better. Pilvi.
1: When uh, we look at this sort of top policymaking and then we go to the practitioners, we have started working a lot with different networks, not only in the vocational excellence of vocational education, but also innovative teachers, uh, governance level and so on. And here we have seen, for instance, we did Innovative Teaching Award or Green Skills Award, and we get about thousand proposals, fantastic proposals from various countries globally from our partner countries, they are all trying really to make the world better and they work in these fields. So I think that's one dimension to work in this way, but be systematic with it. So then you have your awards, you bring them into networks, and then you build the relationship between those networks and your policymakers with whom you work on the country level. And the the other dimension, and that perhaps comes from my overall experience, I don't think we can stress enough leadership and that's in different levels. It's a leadership at school and educational institution levels and autonomy there. And unfortunately, we see in our data that those people working in those positions currently are supported quite little actually, for instance, to improve their skills and so on. And then we talk about political decision-making leadership. They are accurately aware of the needs, but the difficulty comes with the time frame. So whatever sort of educational, lifelong learning, innovation policies you decide today, the impact is seen after decades. So that is the mismatch that is hard for anyone working in a sort of democratically chosen position or even as a civil servant. And for that, you will need convincing data to help these decision makers to really thrive. And so I close by what what I started with, that in my native Finland about 10 years ago, we recognized that my generation born in mid-70s is to be the highest educated generation, not the younger ones. And that was a shocking result, right? So then from that observation and statistics grew the policies that are now then have addressed the secondary education was made obligatory as a reform that equals to 1960s comprehensive education making higher education more available and addressing continuous learning. So policymakers need that data in order to take the leadership because it's not probably the results are not seen in their lifetime. So to conclude, innovation happens in all levels and we need to connect them and then we need the data to help the innovation to travel because innovations don't travel easy.
0: Thank you very much. And Andreas, also coming to you for your your final comment.
2: We shouldn't make education less of an art because it involves a lot of, you know, creativity, individual attributes. But we need to make it a lot more like science you know where good ideas become better predictable scalable where innovation starts to travel where we do not just you look at idiosyncratic interesting practice but where we look at you know how good ideas become part of the innovation ecosystem you know and that also requires a different set of incentives you know in the medical sector we invest 17 times as much as in research and innovation than in the education systems Despite the fact that you both education and and health consume similar amounts of public budgets. And that is a symbol of you know the willingness that we have, you know, to entertain new ideas, to foster new ideas, to bring people at the front line into a role to become, you know, game changers and innovators. And I do think if we, if if we knew What educators know today about new ideas, we would already have very different education systems.
0: Well, both, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a fascinating discussion and um, I very much appreciate all of your insights.
2: Same for you, Andy. Really pleasure to work with you.
1: Thank you, Andy.
0: Thank you for listening to Innovation Quotient. For more information about the Innovation Quotient, please visit economistimpact.com forward slash innovation hyphen quotient.